Well, good evening, church, and thanks again for tuning in to our Wednesday night live stream. It really is a blessing to me, as well as I know our pastors, to see our church family hopping on the live stream week after week, faithfully watching, listening to the messages, the music, all the other things that Pastor Tyler has thrown in there throughout the last couple weeks. And tonight, what I want us to do is I want you to turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter number three, Revelation three, and we're going to actually finish up the series that I've been preaching on and off as Pastor and Pastor Tyler have allowed me to preach on the seven churches in the book of Revelation. And tonight, we're going to talk about the church of Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3. And while you're doing that, let's just start off the message with a little bit of fun. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to comment below in the chat thread the one food that disgusts you the most. I mean, it doesn't matter if you're at someone's house If they put this in front of you, it's almost like it gives you that gag reflex. What is the food that disgusts you the most? And while you're doing that, I want to share what my answer to that would be. Um, I've ever since, maybe since my teenage years, I've had almost a phobia of spoiled milk. It really goes back to uh, when I was a teenager, my daily breakfast was honey bunches of oats, with almonds and that granola, those granola clusters that are in there. And every single day as a teenager, I would eat that. But one morning as I was opening the fridge in my uh, parents' house, I grabbed the skim milk, which that was the first thing that was wrong. My mom bought skim milk for us every single time at the grocery store. And I poured that in the cereal. And I remember as a teenager, I took my spoon, dug it into my honey bunches of oats, took a big old bite, as I'm waking up from sleeping all night, and I discovered that in that bite was not just sweet granola, but disgusting, sour, spoiled skim milk. It doesn't get worse than that. And so ever since then, I've had this obsession. Literally, every time I open the fridge and I'm pulling out any sort of dairy product, I'm always double-checking the expiration date because I'm so scared that I'm going to have spoiled milk. And it doesn't get any better because while I was in college, uh, one of their classmates in our preaching class brought donuts and milk to class. Now that sounds like a great day in college. And so like you probably would think, I was the first guy in line to grab a donut and to grab some milk. And I got some of that milk. I want to say it was Brahms milk or Highland milk or something like that. And I poured it into my cup. And as I was pouring it, I noticed that there was some sort of like splash that happened in the cup while I poured it in. I didn't think anything of it. And so after I took a bite of my donut, I grabbed my milk to take a big old gulp of, I think it was 2% milk. And I was horrified to discover that in my milk was this massive milk fat blob that then went from my cup into my mouth, this massive blob of milk fat that honestly was like a big old milk loogie And it went into my mouth and instantly I ran to the bathroom, spit it out. It was absolutely disgusting. I hate spoiled milk with an absolute passion. And as we read the book of Revelation in chapter number three, I couldn't think of a better way to illustrate the feeling that Jesus gets as he looks down at the church of Laodicea. And as we're about to read in verse number 14, we're going to see that Jesus communicates in no uncertain terms that he's disgusted with what he sees when he looks at this church. The same feeling that you might have when you 
would even think about eating that one food that you may have commented in the chat thread. And the same feeling I have when I talk about the milk fat blob story it is somewhat of a comparison to the disgust, the, the sickness that Jesus might have felt in his stomach as he looked down at the actions of this church. Now I want you to consider that for a moment. Because we shouldn't take it lightly that we're about to read a passage in which Jesus says that he is disgusted by the actions of his church. And I don't know about you, but a lot of times I think when I think of Jesus or God being disgusted by someone's actions, a lot of times I think about people who are out there. People who are outside of church walls, people who don't care about God, people who wouldn't even identify as Christians. And a lot of times we think, oh, God must be disgusted with their lifestyles and with what they think. But here's the reality, church, is that if we're not careful, you and I have just as much of a propensity to bring disgust and dishonor to the very same person who saved our souls. I want you to look at verse number 14 in Revelation 3 and see what Jesus writes to the church of Laodicea. Here's what he says in verse 14. It says, And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, I know thy works. He says, I know the actions that you're involved in, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would, or I would prefer, thou wert cold or hot. Now look at verse 16. He says this, So then because thou art lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Now it's important for us to understand that this passage doesn't necessarily mean probably what some of us have been taught that it means throughout the years. If you've grown up in church, I don't know about you, but growing up, I would hear preachers say something like this. Um, when God talks about you, he'd rather you be hot or cold than lukewarm. He's saying he, he'd rather you be super on fire for God or even unsaved than to be halfway committed to the Lord. But I want you to think about that for a minute. Would God really, really prefer that you're unsaved rather than at least being partially committed to him? Is that really true? I mean, is that really what God is saying in those verses? And, and honestly, as I studied it out, I really don't think that's what God is saying. We have to be really careful not to read verses like that and interpret them through our own lens, but instead to say, what did this mean to the original audience? And to understand verses 14 through 16, as Jesus communicates his disgust towards the church of Laodicea, here's what we have to understand. That Laodicea as a city had a lot of benefits and amenities and a lot of niceties that you would have enjoyed if you lived there. And while they had a lot of those things, they really, really lacked a good source of fresh drinking water. Now let me explain what that means. If you were to go on a, a trip to Laodicea, the first thing you would have noticed as you rode in on the main street of Laodicea is you would have seen massive retail outlets. Now bear with me, maybe it was a little bit different Laodicea, but I'm just trying to paint it in a 21st century perspective. You would have seen Hobby Lobbies and Targets and Starbucks. And honestly, beyond that, you would have seen like the really nice stores like Dillard's and you would have seen Tiffany & Co. And you would have seen Coach and Williams-Sonoma, you would have seen some nice retail establishments. 
And honestly, you probably, if you were in Laodicea and you walked into those stores, you would have immediately felt out of place. You know why? Because everyone around you would have been wearing designer clothing. And they wouldn't have been shopping on the clearance rack like I do when I go to some of those stores. No, they would have been pulling items off the rack one by one as if they didn't have a financial care in the world. And then you would have driven down the road and you would have probably passed what would have been the equivalent to a busy industrial district. Businesses that were booming, uh, similar to those technology companies that are in different parts of our country, busy office spaces, industrial parks. And here's what you would have noticed about the city of Laodicea. They were very prosperous. They had a lot of money. And not only that, they had really good health care. We'll see that alluded to later in the passage. But if you're on this tour of Laodicea and you would have stopped at a restaurant to get a bite to eat, you would have really noticed something was off because as soon as the waitress brought you a cup of water, you would have looked up at the cup of water and noticed that you were in this fancy restaurant with a lot of nice people and nice clothing, but your waitress brought you this cup of water that had floaties on the top and it was nasty and warm. It was disgusting water and you probably would have said, hey, can you bring me another cup? And you would realize that it wasn't that they just made a mistake. No, their water in Laodicea was absolutely disgusting. And here's why. They weren't close, and here's where verse 15 comes in. They weren't close to a hot spring where fresh water came up, nor were they close to cold springs that ran off of the mountains. And so here's this prosperous city of Laodicea, and they had no access to good drinking water because they were really located in a bad part of the region. And so here's what Jesus is saying to the church. He's not making a comparison about hot spirituality versus cold spirituality. Here's what he's saying. That the same way that you look at that water at the floaties, or the same way you look at a glass of spoiled milk, or the glass that had the big fat milk fat blob, the same way that you look at that and you're disgusted by that, and your stomach is churned when you look at something like that, is the same way that I look at your actions and your works when I look down at your church. But why would Jesus say that? Why would Jesus look at a church and use words in language that is so strong as to say that their actions were disgusting to him? That's pretty strong language, right? And I don't know about you, but when I'm looking at this, I'm thinking, well, okay, what's wrong with this church? Are they like the Corinthian church that was involved in some really bad immorality and and totally abusing uh, some of the ordinances and involved in these really bitter and harsh divisions in their church? The reality is, is when you look at the rest of Revelation chapter number three, that's not at all the type of church that we're looking at. In fact, As we study verse 17, as Jesus states why he's disgusted with the church, here's really the one idea that rises to the top about this church, is it's this. They were a self-sufficient church. They were a self-sufficient church. And and, and church, I want to stop for just a second. And before we go into verse 17, I want to ask you to do something. Because as I was reading and studying these verses, it's very easy, I think, with this particular sin for us to look at this passage and become self-deceived that it's not our problem. I want to ask you to just take a moment and ask God to examine your heart and examine your life and examine your spirit 
and ask God to reveal to you if there's something hidden deep within inside of you that you may have a self-sufficient spirit like the church of Laodicea and ask God to reveal that to you because the reality is, is it could be so easy for us to listen to an entire message about this and never ever think of where we've gone wrong. Look at verse 17. He states why he's disgusted. He says, because thou sayest, why is he disgusted? Verse 17, because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. I want you to pay attention to that phrase. He says, and have need of nothing. And knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Here's where the church is at. Is, is they were so prosperous on the outside. They had such good financial status and they had such strong health and they were very healthy people because they had access to good medical care and everything on the outside of their life looked like life was good. They might even have said something like this, wow, God has really blessed me. But because they had this material prosperity, because life was so good for them, they had allowed their prosperity to deceive them into thinking that they didn't need God. He said, I have need of nothing. Now, when I think about that, I, I really doubt that anyone in the church, if you would have interviewed them, would say, yeah, we don't need God. I really don't think any Christian person is that dumb, honestly. I don't think anyone out there watching the live stream tonight says, oh, I don't need God, because here's the reality. None of us are dumb enough to say that, but here's the problem with self-sufficiency, is that actions speak louder than words. That it doesn't matter what you say about your own dependence upon the Lord. Your actions are going to speak a lot louder than your words. And as I began looking into my own heart and in my own life, I began to realize that a lot of times I may say I'm dependent upon the Lord, but my actions reveal that I'm not. How is that revealed? I think sometimes our prayer life reveals a self-sufficiency and a lack of dependence upon God. I wonder if maybe the church of Laodicea, because they were prosperous in their businesses and because their life seemed to be going well, and it seemed like they had a track record of making good decisions, I wonder if maybe when big life decisions and big business decisions came up, that instead of praying and seeking God and asking God to give them the wisdom to make that decision, I wonder if maybe their attitude was more like this. Well, I think I've got this figured out. I've seen this happen and I understand a lot about business or I understand a lot about life. So I'm just going to make the decision that seems to fit the best for what I'm looking at. And I'm not really going to pray about it. I wonder how often they started their day without asking God to give them the grace to live for him that day. You know, sometimes I'm a little bit ashamed at how often that I try to live out a biblical Christianity without ever asking for God's help. Church, honestly, that reveals a self-sufficient spirit. I wonder if they went days or weeks or months without ever confessing their sin to God. Can I, can I just say tonight that if you don't confess your sin to God, it really points out the heart attitude that you really don't think you need a closeness in your relationship with him. It points out in your attitude a, a low view of sin and a self-sufficient spirit. You know what else points out a self-sufficient spirit? Is our willingness as people to put God's commands aside 
and to put God's pattern of life aside to choose what we think is best for our own lives. I wonder if there are maybe some Laodicean parents who understood how God wanted them to parent their children, but yet because they thought they had life figured out, said, I'm going to parent a different way because maybe God's way is a little bit too old-fashioned. I wonder if there were some spouses that when they understood that God says, let not the sun go down upon your wrath, instead for them it was use the silent treatment to get back at your spouse. I wonder if instead of leading with love like God commands us, even when our spouse messes up, for some of these people in this church, it was I'm going to wait for the other person to say sorry first. Here's the truth, church. When you say no to God's commands, you are essentially saying you don't need God's wisdom. And when you say no to prayer, you are essentially saying that you don't need God's help. But I want to caution you. Because as we look at the second half of verse number 17, I think we see something here that's a little concerning to me. Because self, here's what verse 17 is really saying, is that self-sufficiency is the perfect cover-up for spiritual bankruptcy. These people thought they had it all figured out on the outside, but I want you to look at what God sees and God diagnoses when he looks at their heart. He says this, And knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. This church thought they were okay spiritually, but when God looked in at their life, he saw not a church that had it all together, but he saw people that if he could find words to describe their spiritual state, he said, you are broke, you're naked, you're blind. It's a totally different picture than how these people would have viewed themselves. This church thought they were comfortable, but spiritually they were miserable. They thought they were wealthy, but spiritually they were poor. They thought they had great eyesight and eye care, but spiritually they were blind. And church, here's the question I want to ask. I wonder, I wonder if we really got honest with ourselves tonight. I wonder if we really allowed God to do an inventory in our heart. I wonder if sometimes the image we try to portray to the public is just a cover-up for our own spiritual brokenness. I wonder if some of the people that try so hard to look put together on the outside, it's because they're really honestly miserable on the inside. I wonder if there's some that have marks of wealth on the outside, but when it comes to their spiritual lives, in God's estimation, they're poor. If that's you, and if that's me, we have to be honest with ourselves tonight, church, and understand that that attitude of self-sufficiency that really is a cover-up for spiritual bankruptcy absolutely and unequivocally dis disgusts our God. So what do we do? It's hard preaching, isn't it? It's hard for me to look at my own life and, and, and come face to face with the reality that sometimes I act like I've got this thing figured out when God calls me to be so dependent upon him. And so how do we respond what do we do if God is looking into our hearts and revealing that we are self-sufficient, much like the church of Laodicea was? Here's what Jesus tells this church. He's going to give them two commands in the rest of the passage. And he says, if you are a self-sufficient church or you are a self-sufficient person, I want you to do these two things so that you can get right with me 
And as he'll talk about in verse 20, 20 and 21, so you can have good fellowship with me. Here's the first one. Here's the first command Jesus gives us. If you're self-sufficient, he calls you to pursue spiritual rewards more than earthly possessions. Pursue spiritual rewards more than earthly possessions. Look at verse number 18. If you didn't think Jesus was sarcastic, you haven't read Revelation 3.18. He says this, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. You know what Jesus is saying there? Uh, maybe the, the older English language covers up the sarcasm that's there. Here's what Jesus is saying to the self-sufficient church that, that their actions literally disgust them. He says, can I just give you a little bit of advice? Let me just give you a little bit of counsel. Maybe instead of caring about what people see on the outside, and maybe instead of caring about the wealth that you have in an earthly sense, maybe you should consider Instead of buying gold that you can get in Laodicea, maybe you should think about buying gold from me. You know the type of gold that's not going to perish when you die, but the spiritual rewards that last on forever? Maybe instead of focusing so much on what you look like when you go outside and the clothes that you wear, maybe you should be more concerned with how I view you and the fact that you're naked when I look at you. You're, you're totally destitute spiritually when I look down at your life. Here's what Jesus is saying. That maybe you and I as people, as followers of Jesus, should focus a little bit more on how God views us than how other people view us. Maybe we should spend a little less time, Jesus is saying to the Laodicean church, a little less time shopping for more clothes and a little more time seeking my righteousness. And church, can I remind you that the best way to spend your time is to pursue spiritual rewards over earthly possessions? And would we all just agree tonight that a lot of times our priorities get totally mixed up? We become less concerned with spiritual depth and more concerned with material wealth. Our culture glorifies the grind and the hustle when it comes to making an income and building a business or something like that. But yet a lot of times the very same people who talk about having a hardcore work ethic are the very same people that if you look at their prayer life, it's anything but that. Maybe sometimes we dig deep and we grow deeper in our knowledge and our understanding of subjects that matter very little in eternity, but we spend very little time digging into the scriptures. Church, I'll just be real honest and maybe just be a little bit practical tonight that if you know a ton about politics and the next political move that our president has made and that some other congressional leader has made, then you know how to study the book of Job. You have some mixed up priorities. And here's what Jesus is saying to this church, that you need to prioritize the spiritual over the earthly. To me, it's sad that a, lot, that a lot of us, and I'll speak it for myself because I've done this before, we'll do a keto diet or we'll go to the gym and we'll, we'll push hard to get into the gym several days a week with immense discipline, but we rarely, if ever, fast and pray. We'll endlessly entertain ourselves and spend a lot of money on different subscriptions, but for some Christians, honestly, it's a chore just to give to spiritual causes. And here's what Jesus is saying to this church, that if you have a self-sufficient spirit, maybe it's because you have mixed up priorities. 
And maybe it's because you have prioritized the earthly over the spiritual. And here's what Jesus says. If you want to get right with me, if you want to be close to me, there has to come a point in your life where you stop seeking things that are earthly and start prioritizing the heavenly. But then here's what Jesus says in verse number 19. Here's the second thing he calls us to do. He says, you need to zealously repent of your self-sufficiency. Zealously repent of your self-sufficiency. Look at verse number 19. Here's what Jesus says. He says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Here's the command. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Do you see the two commands there? He says, be zealous, that's one command, and repent. And really, it's just one idea that if you and I are falling into the trap of self-sufficiency, Jesus wants us to zealously repent of that sin. And I think it's important to note that Jesus emphasizes what happens on the inside first. The command, the first command is be zealous. And I just think back on my lifetime that there are times when I would repent and I would ask for forgiveness and I would try to change my actions. But you know why those things never really followed through? It's because deep down within me, there wasn't a passion to do what was right. There wasn't a zeal. There wasn't something deep within inside me that wanted to get that thing right. And here's the truth, church. If you want to have the hope to change, God has to do something deep within you that causes you to change your actions on the outside. And here's the problem. There's no preacher in the world that can cause that for you. There's no message on earth that within you can stir the zeal and the passion that you need to change your life. God has to do that in you. You have to make up your mind. You have to say that I'm done living like this and be willing to zealously repent of your self-sufficiency. You have to buy in. You have to refuse to settle for less. I love the ending of Revelation 3 because it's honestly some of the most, I think, heated and intense words that Jesus has for the churches in Revelation 2 and 3. But yet throughout the passage, Jesus over and over reminds them that he's not saying this because he wants to condemn them. He's not speaking to their sin and to their actions just to beat them down. But yet Jesus over and over in the passage wants to call them closer to himself. Look at verse number 19. He says this, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Now look at verse 20 and 21. As Jesus ends this letter to the church of Laodicea, here's what he says. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and then sat down with my father in his throne. And I want you to think about this church. He talks about how Jesus, he's standing at the door and knocking. But I want you to think about this. Do you realize what he's saying there? is that he's literally outside of their home. He's saying that when you and I become self-sufficient, here's what happens. We unintentionally distance ourselves from Jesus. So much so that he's knocking. 
saying, can I come in? I just want to have fellowship with you. Can I come in? I just want to draw you closer to me so that we can have a relationship that's close here, but also in eternity. When I was at the right hand of my father, as I overcame death, and you can be one of my children and enjoy those same type of heavenly rewards. Here's the truth, church, that Jesus wants you to have a close relationship with him. But usually the only thing standing between you and Jesus and me and Jesus is our own pride and self-sufficiency. I love what the Bible says. It says that God is nigh to them that have a broken heart and a contrite spirit. Church, can I encourage you to respond the very same way that Jesus wanted this church to respond. If, you, if you've allowed God to look into your heart tonight and say, man, I'm self-sufficient, I have a pride that I, in my actions, maybe not in my words, in my actions, I act like I don't need God. Can I exhort you to repent, but also to pursue that which is heavenly more than you pursue that which is earthly? Because here's the reality, Jesus just wants to be close to you. And the only thing getting in the way of that is our pride. I want us to pray together, but before we do that, I thought about this because the idea of the passage is that they would zealously repent of their sins. And I don't know about you, but for me, one of the things that I wrestle with emotionally with online church is that I don't have the opportunity to come forward and respond in prayer at an altar like we typically do. But here's what I want to encourage you to do. I want to encourage you that if God has spoken to you to take this very seriously. Honestly, I think when Jesus spoke his parables and wanted to communicate truth to his disciples, he didn't always have an altar call, but I think he expected them to take the message that he had preached to them and apply it to their lives and change something. And so let me encourage you as I pray, even if you're in your living room, even if there are kids running around like my kids often do, can I encourage you to just clear off a spot and ask God to forgive you and ask God to help you and change your heart. Let's pray. Father, I'm so grateful that even when you use some of the most stern language toward our sin, God, it's out of a spirit of love. You want fellowship with us. And God, I hope it could never be said of Fellowship Baptist Church that we are a self-sufficient Church, God, I hope that successes and prosperity don't inflate our pride, but they humble us and they make us even more grateful for you. Lord, I pray that you'd forgive us of our self-sufficiency. I pray you'd forgive us, God, for putting aside your commands or refusing to depend on you in prayer. And God, I pray that you'd help us, give us the grace and the strength to prioritize the heavenly over the earthly because God, it's so easy not to. And Lord, I pray that whoever you may have spoken to, whoever you may have changed, God, that they would zealously repent. God, that there would be a change on the outside because there's something within them that says, I cannot continue this way any longer. Lord, help us to live for you this week. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.